Please turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to 8, and just to hear my heart and to what, uh, what I believe uh, the Lord needs, or would have us understand as the church of Jesus Christ here in San Francisco. Mark chapter 7, verse 1 to 8. I'll read the text for us uh, together, with, and you can just kind of quietly follow along in your Bibles. I'm reading the New American Standard again. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Let's pray one more time. Father, your word tells us that Jesus instructs us, Lord, that when we worship, that the worshipers that you look for are worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord, as we gather to worship you this morning, as we particularly come to your word, we want to be people who worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, now as we open up your book, may your spirit fill us. May you lead us and guide us and teach us. May our hearts be prepared to hear what your truth has to say to our lives. And as our reverence and fear and worship of you, Lord, may we respond to what you say. May we look to ourselves even before we look to others. Father, may you cause us, each and every one of us to see the dangers in which Jesus pointed out not only to the Pharisees and scribes and his disciples in that day, but, Lord, the very dangers that threaten our church, this church, today as well. And guard us, Lord, from teaching us precepts as doctrines, the precepts of men. Father, be glorified as we look to your word now. Uh, guide me. Use this vessel to speak your words. Father, give your people ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> this week, uh, I love Facebook every once in a while. Not for the great videos that are always in front of my eyes, but I like it because there are some saints out there who will put up great quotes. And uh, this week I saw this great quote, actually, wow, wonderful quote, by J.C. Ryle. Yeah, he's an old guy, okay, old dead guy. But uh, he wrote, let us be very, so it doesn't really matter who he is, but he, he actually matters, but let us be very careful, but that's not the point. Let us be very careful that we never exalt any minister or sermon or book or friend, and I would even add or quote, above the word of God. 
But the point nevertheless stands. This summarizes the application of today's sermon. That we would never elevate any man, any word of man above the word of God. For to lift up the man, any man or words of man above the word of God is to have a hypocritical faith. With our mouths, we say, I worship God, but with our exaltation, our respect, our reverence, we, we worship men. This passage uh, is something that uh, we've touched before. I just touched on it in our adult one Sunday school class this past last week. But it is a text that warns us of, of having a hypocritical faith. And we all know, we, and as a Christians, uh, that's something we're sensitive about. We're like, well, I never want to be a hypocrite, though we are all at times hypocrites. But we don't want to be people who have a faith, a general practice, a characteristic of our faith that is characterized by hypocrisy. Faith, particularly here in our text, hypocritical faith that lifts man above God. Now, brothers and sisters, we are all guilty of this from time to time. Okay, let's, hopefully you can be ready to acknowledge that, that there are times when we elevate a man or man's words. Now, not to say that we offer them many offerings or we give them many, our, our verbal worship, or, uh, well, some, you know, sometimes people do, but we are all guilty of this. But it's a, I, but then this should never characterize our life as a whole. How does this happen? How does this kind of look like in the context of a mature church like this? In every mature church, a church that has gone to the place where it's reproduced itself in a second generation and now in the process of reproducing itself in a third generation, there is always tension in a church, tension in a local church, usually between an older generation and a younger generation. Uh, it happens on a very, on another, as well as on a smaller level in our homes and our families as well. But the older generation, often desires to pass on the wisdom and traditions of their generation. Whether they are wisdom and traditions that they learn for life, for work, for family, and for church. This wisdom has been gleaned from a lifetime of learning from God and applying truths to life. However, the younger generation often resists that wisdom. Often Wondering if there is not a better, sometimes they'll even say if there's not a more biblical way to go about life, work, family, and church. It is the nature of youth, of a younger generation, to, to question, to ask, is this really a be- the, is this the only way? Is there a better way? Is there a more biblical way to do things? Now, that's a tension that always exists, and God uses both. The older may be correct. They have applied God's word. They walk with God throughout their lives. And they will, and they've correctly applied, uh, the principles of scripture to life, to church, to family, to work. And often, the younger, especially when, particularly when they become parents themselves, will realize this and say, oh, wow, my parents were right. But the older generation's correct. But there are times when the older generation may be wrong. They are, they, the result is that they have held and taught a tradition of men as if it is a precept of God. And when that happens, the church is in danger of hypocritical faith. 
It's in danger. It's, see, teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men, is something that only comes with, that you can only do with, it comes with you have clout. A young person can come around and say, oh, yeah, I think we should all do this. I'll say, oh, you're young. What do you know? It is the older generation, those of us that are parents, our young parents, older parents, that we're learning, we're passing on. We've gained some experience. We want to pass it on, wisdom. But we must always ask ourselves, is this just human wisdom? Or is this biblical wisdom? But when we pass on human wisdom, earthly wisdom, practical wisdom, hey, just you need to invest in an IRA, you know. Invest in a, some, your 403B. Invest in something for retirement. And we make that a, the doctrines of, of God. We are in danger of a hypocritical faith because we elevate, in a way, the man, words of men above the word of God. So hopefully you understand. You can kind of get that. That's where we want to head. We want to understand how this scripture applies to our, this tension that we feel in our, in our in the life of a church, a mature church like this. As we look at our text, we're going to have three points of this outline. And this is simply this, three characteristics of hypocritical faith. Three characteristics of hypocritical faith. Three things to watch out for in our faith, in our walk with God, that we, guard, that we should guard from so that we do not fall into the danger of hypocrisy, where we elevate man's words, man and man above God, God's word. So number one, then, the first characteristic of a hypocritical faith is focusing, number one, on others' faults. Focusing on others' faults. Now, mankind is great at this. This is probably one of our strengths. We, we're good at focusing on others' faults. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're Christian, non-Christian. We all are, you know, pretty, you know, we learn to do this pretty well. Verse one and two, look at the text with me. It says, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, that is Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem. So they had all come all the way from Jerusalem, and they sought out Jesus. Verse 2, and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. The primary subjects here in this text are the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious establishment of that day. These are the people with clout. These are the people who have the power and authority to teach as doctrines, the precepts of men, the Pharisees were known as the were known as the Bible Bible believing people, the fundamentalists in their day. They were the strictest set of Judaism, according to Acts twenty six five. You could you could definitely uh, say that you could if they if they walked into the church today, you might actually feel comfortable with them. You would respect the fact that hey, they just want to honor God by following the law. They strictly believed in keeping the law of Moses. Whatever the Bible says, whatever the law of Moses says, we want to obey. Of course, they added to that. The scribes were, the scribes were those who were in the profession of teaching and interpreting the law. They're like the pastors of today, responsible to teach the people of God, the word of God. Now, most scribes were Pharisees. It makes sense. You know, the other sect, if you will, in Judaism was the Sadducees. They were the liberals of that day. So not the most pastors who taught the word of God would be people who believed that it's important for us to observe the, the word of God, the law of God. And so these uh, Pharisees and scribes, they were, are the subjects. They gather around Jesus. They look for Jesus. The first time they, we find them mentioned in the Gospel of Mark is way back in chapter 2, of, chapter two verse 6. 
And from the very beginning, if you, we had time to kind of trace scribes and Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Mark, we would find that they are constantly in disagreement with Jesus. They dis, in Mark chapter 2, 6, they disagreed with him on forgiving sins. They confronted, in Mark chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, they confronted him on eating with tax gatherers and sinners. In 2, 18 to 22, they disagreed and conflicted with him on fasting. In chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, or chapter 2, 23 to 28, they, they uh, picked on him for picking grain on the Sabbath. And then Mark chapter 3, verse 1 to 6, uh, they challenged him on healing on the Sabbath. And so forth and so on. And we learn that there's a pattern of these scribes and Pharisees that they were really opposed to Jesus. He was a threat because he was basically denying many of the things that they held to be true, to be honoring to God. Chapter 7 here, a delegation of Pharisee scribes are sent. They're sent from Jerusalem to Galilee to find fault with Jesus, to show, prove that he is wrong and he's not someone to be followed because people were following him. They wanted to protect, of course, their religious, their religion, their Judea, uh, their, their particular interpretation of Judaism. Because this young upstart teacher was basically causing a ruckus and tossing everything aside that they had taught and they had learned from the elders before them and the elders before them and the elders before them. These are long-standing traditions that he was causing people to go amiss. And verse 2 tells us that when they looked hard enough, they saw what they needed to discredit Jesus. They saw with their eyes some of Jesus' disciples eating food with impure hands. Wow, impure hands. What, did they did They murder someone with that? It's, this word impure is, uh, it implies that there's something uh, sinful about their hands. The word actually literally means common, but it meant something that's profane, that's not holy. Mark explains here that uh, in this this whole idea of these profane or impure hands comes out of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. or The idea comes out of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. He, Mark explains to his Gentile readers that uh, what, they mean, what they mean by impure hands is simply that they're unwashed hands. They're unwashed. You just didn't wash them. You know, right now we're trying to teach our daughter to wash her hands before she eats. So, you know, but when she doesn't eat, I don't say, oh, you are a sinner. You have impure hands. But that's essentially what the Jews were teaching here, these Pharisees and scribes. Now, of course, the issue here isn't one of hygienic cleanliness, but of ceremonial cleanliness. They had come to find fault, and they found it in the observation that Jesus' disciples failed to wash their hands before they ate. Hypocritical faith loves to find fault in others. The Pharisees and scribes believed that because they had washed their hands before eating, that they were somehow pure people before the Lord, before God. That they had a righteous standing because they observed this law or this rule about washing your hands before eating food. In reality, though, they, like everyone else, were sinners in need of salvation. Yes, they had sinful hands. They had impure hands as well, just as we all have impure hands. But impure hands is not because of the fact that we didn't wash them. It's because of the sinful, impure heart that's within 
that makes our whole being sinful. They could not see their own hypocrisy because they were focused on seeing others' faults. Now, we do this all the time. And I, I know I'm guilty of this quite a bit, especially when I drive, you know. And I drive, and uh, yesterday I had a good long drive, beautiful drive, just going up to Mendocino, uh, Hopland area. And, uh, you know, when you drive, uh, or maybe it's just me, but when you drive, you know, don't you, you ever notice all the bad drivers on the road? All the bad drivers out there. That guy's driving too slow. Oh, that, that woman's driving too fast. Oh, that one's driving too reckless. Oh, man, they just cut in front of me. Oh, man. Oh, they're obviously on their cell phone. <sighs> you know, you just notice how all those bad drivers, and you're like, of course, how many times do we say, oh, I'm driving really bad today. I'm driving too fast. I'm driving too slow. I'm driving reckless. Oh, I'm on my cell phone. Don't do that. The fact is, we don't think about how we drive. A tendency is we always focus on others' faults, how other people drive. That's just a small example of how what we do in the Christian life as well. You know, we hear a message and we're thinking, oh, man, I'm so glad brother so-and-so is here to hear that. Because he sure needs it. Sister so-and-so, oh, she, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. I mean, I'm glad she's here to hear that message. She needs it. Now, she, he or she may need it. But we need it first, right? It's just so much easier for us to focus on others' faults and forget it, neglect it. That's what the the Pharisees, scribes are doing here. And we can, and being that way in the Christian life, faith is is just is deadly and detrimental to our own souls. Are you focused on finding faults in others? Not your focus. And I think it gets worse when we become parents. I don't know about you, but I'm like always looking at my daughter. What's she doing wrong? You know, oh, I can't believe she did that. And of course, those are teaching moments and stuff like that. And you get trained to look for, you know, those things. But hopefully, I'm observing my, I'm twice as likely looking at my own life and seeing the example I set before her. But when we're focused on finding faults in others, we are in danger of being a hypocrite. We don't, when we look for faults in others, we don't, we tend not to look at our own faults. Now, certainly the scripture tells us that we have a responsibility to reprove a fellow believer when they're living in sin. But Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 5, on this very subject, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We must be careful, brothers and sisters, to avoid a faith that is always focused on finding fault in others. That leads to a hypocritical faith. Secondly, as we look on the text, that's just kind of observation number one. Uh, Second observation of of the characteristic of hypocritical faith is that hypocritical faith involves making religion out of traditions. Making religion out of traditions. And I use the word religion in the sense of just the general sense of a system of rules that we would, which we practice and follow to observe our faith. Verse 3 through 5, we read these things. Mark continues to explain, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition 
of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands. The description of the specific washing rituals of the Jewish people here in verse 3 to 4 tell us that Mark was writing to a Gentile, predominantly Roman mindset of an audience who would not have understood these kind of things. If he was writing to a Jewish audience, he wouldn't have had to explain it. But the Pharisees and all the Jews in general don't eat unless they have carefully washed their hands first. And they, again, they didn't do this out of just to be, clean, to be cleaned, hygienic, but they did it out of a sense of religion, of religious practice. This is how they were to be pure before God. It's much like, if I could even dare add, it's almost to the equivalent of how we teach our children to pray before giving thanks, before we eat a meal. And now, don't get me wrong, you shouldn't, not necessarily that you should stop that. But yet, praying and giving thanks to eat before every meal is not specifically commanded in the scriptures. In everything, we ought to give thanks. And that's an example of that by doing so. But when you get to the place where you, you say, well, you have to pray. And if you don't pray before you eat in a meal, you have sinned. Whoa, whoa, dial it back. They may not be, it may be a reflective heart of thankfulness. It may just, you may have just been forgetful. No, it is good to give thanks to God for everything. But when we start making it a rule, a tradition, say this is what you must do to be right before God, like these Jewish leaders were doing, you are making a religion out of tradition. Even if it is a tradition based on biblical principles. This hand-washing that the Jews were involved in was something that was actually never commanded in the Old Testament, though they made it as if it was so. The only hand-washing command in the Old Testament is found in Exodus chapter 30, verse 19, where the priests were commanded to wash their hands and their feet before entering the tabernacle. And it's probably because of that, those kind of commands, that over time, the Jewish people, the Jewish uh, scribes were, well, if it's, if the priests are to wash their hands before they, before, before God, then we should wash our hands before appearing, approaching before God, or when we approach Him, whether in the temple, or even wash our hands before we do anything and everything, whether to eat or drink. Maybe biblically principled, perhaps, but then becoming a tradition that became religion. This oral tradition developed. Uh, over time, whereby washing of hands before eating became a requirement for ceremonial purity. These oral traditions were eventually written down, and, and today we have them recorded uh, in a book, a part of the, uh, the Jewish kind of writings called the Mishnah. It became a part of Jewish practice and religion. The Mishnah, in fact, had very specific instructions for washing one's hand. Of the six major divisions of the Mishnah, one whole division is devoted entirely to this topic of ceremonial purity, how you can remain pure. Mark reveals more of these specific rituals for us in verse 4, these things that will be recorded in the Mishnah. There were ceremonial cleansing rituals for the hands, but also for the body, for the vessels of the house. And none of these were commanded in the Scriptures. But over time... They, de- they developed into an elaborate system of washings. Uh, I told you already, the mission of one of the major divisions on the topic of ceremonial purity. 
But in that particular division, there are 30 chapters just on the matter of how to purify vessels, bowls, and cups, and plates. 30 chapters. Can you imagine reading? Okay, let's read out of uh, the Mishnah chapters 1 to 30 and how we clean our bowls and plates and forks and knives. Whoa. In order to be right before God. That's essentially, they had gone that far. The Pharisees turned the tradition of cleansing, of cleansing rituals into a religion. And they made it seem and taught it as if this is how you can be right with God. Or at the very least, if you are right with God, this is how you're going to live. So in verse 5, when the Pharisees and scribes had seen what Jesus' disciples, they didn't wash their hands before eating. Oh, no. It wasn't out of concern that they would get sick, but it was out of concern that these were sinners. They confronted Jesus with what they believed was a violation of their Jewish traditions. It was a serious charge in that day. In fact, according to the Mishnah, one rabbi who questioned, dared to question the rituals of hand washing was excommunicated from the synagogue. The disciples of Jesus had broken the traditions of the elders. This word traditions is a key word in this whole uh, passage. It's mentioned five times, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, verse 9, verse 13. The word traditions now is oftentimes has a negative connotation. And in this text, it has a negative connotation. But traditions by itself is not negative. Traditions are simply something that's handed down, handed over, passed on. All the, in, the holidays are coming up, Thanksgiving, Christmas. We all have traditions, family traditions, that we teach our children. And we're willing that they may teach their children. Particularly here, though, these traditions were teachings that had been handed down from generation to generation. These Pharisee scribes were zealous to preserve these long-standing traditions that were passed on throughout those generations. The scriptures even here talks about not only the mentioned truths, but these were passed on, received to others, generations to receive in order to observe. These were things that were taught to the future generation, the other generations, so they would keep them, obey them, so they would be ceremonially clean. The Pharisees believed that these, the fact that these were long-standing and commonly practiced traditions, made them right traditions, biblical traditions. This kind of logic still happens today, even among ourselves. It can happen. It does happen. Now, there are extreme cases. There are groups of Christians who believe, for instance, that the King James Version of the Bible is the only version to be used. Because, why? Because it's of its long-standing nature. It's been passed on generation to generation. And that therefore, and it's commonly used. Therefore, it is God's Bible. And they would, some would teach that to use any other version is wrong. But a bit more close to home, this kind of logic, we apply it to the traditions of this church. And we are 50 plus years, so we, we've got our traditions. Not necessarily that they're sinful, but they cut, when we make them a matter of right or wrong, we get into the danger of hypocritical faith. Tell me, is it right or wrong? That is... Biblically, morally, good. Absolutely. 
or biblically morally evil to attend Sunday school class. I hope you do attend a Sunday school class. Especially adult one. Okay, other elders may disagree with us. You know, go to adult two or three or fundamentals. But when, but I want, never want you to ever think that attending Sunday school class makes you right before God. And attending, not attending Sunday school class makes you a sinner before God. Now, there may be attitudes there that reflect a sinful heart or a right heart, okay? That you want to honor God, that's why, and you want to learn more about God, that's why you attend Sunday school class? That is good. That is morally, that is morally pleasing to the Lord. But if you simply attend out of this fact to say that, well, I have to attend, you, you want to, that it's the, my way to be right with God, that is, that is wrong. That is a, you're in danger of hypocritical faith. We can almost even apply it to anything else that we have in this church. Long-standing traditions of the church, whether it's Sunday school class, fellowship groups, even uh, uh, worship services more specifically commanded in the scriptures. But other ministries within the church. Attendance of one thing or another is never, never biblically commanded one way or another. But sometimes we tend to make the, the attendance or the attendance in these things. I know sometimes we teach it as our children as we want to attend that honors God because we want to learn about God. And I know they might hear something else and say, well, I attend Sunday school class and therefore I'm right with God. That may happen. But sometimes we fall into get that simple, get into that habit of just making a tradition. Well, as Christians here, we go to Sunday school class. That doesn't make us right or wrong. That's not right or wrong. The Pharisees focused on preserving the long-standing traditions, even though they were unbiblical, led them to a false spirituality, a consequent hypocrisy, a, a really a man-made religion. Paul warned us, the Apostle Paul warned us of the dangers of man-made religion in Colossians chapter 2, verse 20 to 23. When we make our own traditions into law, we fall into this danger. Paul says here, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. We see here the term self-made religion. Self-made religion, man-made religion has the appearance of wisdom. But it is not wisdom. When we hold fast to the spirituality of man-made traditions instead of Christ, we settle for something much less than the faith that Christ wants us and the, the walk that God wants us to walk in. We must always be ready as a church to jettison and let go of any tradition that is not biblical or to change any tradition that no longer serves its purposes. A church that doesn't change, that holds on to old traditions just because they're old, is a church that's in danger of a false spirituality and hypocrisy. And believe me, our younger generation will see it. They won't want any part of that if they are of Christ. Because Christ is much better than man-made religion. 
we must watch out for a religion that is focused on preserving our long-standing traditions simply because they're old or common. Preserve all traditions if they are biblical. That's it. Failure to do so leads to hypocrisy. Our third characteristic of hypocritical faith then is found in verse 6 to 8. And this is really the, the main point. Jesus then speaks and explains why uh, the, the Pharisees' traditions is all wrong. And that is this. This third uh, characteristic is that, uh, of hypocritical faith is that we elevate man's word above God's. This is really at the heart of the problem of our biblical traditions, of our man-made traditions. Man-made traditions of themselves, are not, there's nothing wrong with them. They're just traditions. You, know, you want to put a, a, a Christmas tree up every Christmas? That's your tradition. That's fine. You honor it due to the glory of Jesus Christ. But let's recognize that it's a man-made tradition. But when we elevate man's word, man's traditions, man's practices above what God's word says, then we are in danger of hypocritical faith. We see this in verse 6 to 8. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus, without directly answering the Pharisees' accusation, reproves them by just calling them hypocrites. Only Jesus would he could do this. And not only does he call them hypocrites, but then he backs it up with scriptures. The word hypocrite was used in Greek language of basically an actor, play actor. Uh, neutral word at first, but in biblical usage, it came to have a negative connotation of one who is basically in contradiction to himself or herself. And that contradiction can happen in different ways, but particularly this contradiction here in, in this text is one of doctrine. Though a person may, these scribes and Pharisees have claimed to be worshippers of God, they had elevated man's words, particularly man's tra- and words about the traditions above God's word. They are they were teaching as doctrines the priests of men. They were saying, "Here are these things. These are words of men. These are words that are taught by the rabbis of old, and these are equal." No, they were saying they were above the word of God. And Jesus, to show them the dangers, the hypocrisy, quotes from the book of Isaiah. Man, Isaiah is quoted everywhere. I'm glad that we get to look through it. We, we looked at this text. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And by quoting this verse, Jesus was saying that the Pharisees and scribes were just like the people whom Isaiah prophesied to in the 8th century B.C. Now, I know all of you remember Isaiah 29, right? If you don't know, just say, oh, it must have been about judgment, right? Because that's probably half of what Isaiah is about. Yes, it was. You're right. It's about judgment. Particularly judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. Remember, we looked at it. Why is God judging Jerusalem? It's like almost to you and me today. It's like God is judging the church. What? Wait, isn't that his people? Why is God judging the church? God here is judging Jerusalem, the capital of the the nation of Israel, his chosen people. 
the place in the center of the worship of Yahweh. And in Isaiah 29, if you recall, we, went, we go back there. I, Isaiah, God through Isaiah pronounces judgment on Jerusalem, even though the Jerusalemites and the whole nation of Israel were very religious, very regular in their observation of all the national feasts. There are three times a year there would be these national feasts, which every uh, male uh, Israelite would have to go to, and oftentimes the whole family would come as well. And so they would go, and these, the, the nation regularly observed this. And you would think, oh, that's, that's worship. They, they practiced and they, they observed all the feasts. God in Isaiah 29 points out that though you observe, you keep, go right ahead observing those feasts, but you are all blind. You're blind because of yourselves, your rejection of God's word, but you're blind because I've also blinded you, God says. They were blind to the, God, to the word of God, even as they were outwardly practicing the, the worship of God through their religious feasts. And verse 13 of Isaiah 29 explains their situation. Outwardly, the people appeared to be near to God because they simply said the right things. They offered their, they honored me with their lips, he says, right? They honored God and they would say, we're worshiping God. That's why we go to Jerusalem. But inwardly, God points out, the people's hearts were far away from him. That they didn't really go there because of God. The last phrase of verse 13 in Isaiah 29 reads, literally, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Their fear of me, the reverence of me, their worship of me is a commandment taught by men. That their worship of God consisted of what men commanded. Instead of worshiping God in obedience to his commands and according to his ways, they worshiped God because they were simply following the commands of men, their scribes, their Pharisees, their leaders. They blindly followed whatever their teacher said, whatever their leader, their religious leaders told them to do. Oh, we need to go to, the, go to Jerusalem three times a year and observe the feast? Okay, we'll do that. And that's, that's worship. And in effect, the people elevated man's word above God's word. Do you worship here today because some person told you to come here to worship? Or do you worship here today because you know that God has called you as his children to worship him and you come here ready with your heart to offer up your praise to him, your obedience to him, your reverence to him? In spirit and in truth. It's a subtle thing, isn't it? Outwardly, they look the same. We all come every Sunday. We all, you know, dress up. We all kind of, you know, go through the, you know, the practice of singing songs. We all go here. We're all sitting, uh, looking like we're attentive to the word of God. We all put an offering in the plate. And then we all, you know, walk out of here. But are, what are, why, why are you doing that? Are you doing it because your mother or father told you to do this? Are you doing it, and parents, and, no, and all good parents would instruct their children to do that, no doubt. 
But we know that we ought to do this because God calls us to do this. What Isaiah taught or in Isaiah 29, 13 was exactly what was happening in Jesus' day. And we read, uh, we read in the text, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. God had provided the Israelites with specific doctrines regarding how to worship him, much of which is recorded in the book of Leviticus. But by Jesus' day, the worship system had added many upon many man-made traditions. They had become precepts, rules, and guidelines by which every Israelites were to follow. In fact, there were so many that they really none of them could follow them. But the scribes who were entrusted with teaching the law were instead of teaching the law, were teaching the rules of men. This is all the rules so that you would not break the law. And they elevated these rules, these traditions, to be equal with the doctrines of God. And instead of worshiping God according to his ways, the Israelites, led by their leaders, were worshiping him according to man's ways. And Jesus called them out for their hypocritical faith. What's more, according to verse 8 in our text, not only had the Pharisees made the rules of men equal to the doctrine of God, but they set them above God's word. Later on in chapter, in verses 9 to 13, there's a, Jesus will elaborate on how they did this, how they, in fact, ignored God's word, put God, or put God's word below, and they elevated in order to keep man's traditions, their traditions of men. The Pharisees were so focused on their outward rituals, their cleansings, their traditions, that they ignored God's word in order to keep those. Now, you may be thinking that, oh, man, we don't do that here, and that's the Bible. And uh, in general, we don't. In general, we don't. Thank God. But we all can be guilty of the same thing when we elevate man's ideas to become doctors of God. Now, we especially, we tend to do this with, our, with the convictions of our hearts, right? We do it with our convictions. Now, there are some things that Scripture just does not explicitly talk about. For instance, we may have the conviction that, uh, well, <clears throat> that when I come to church on Sunday morning, that I want to wear my Sunday best. I want to wear my best, and the best is whatever it has. Uh, and that's, that may, that's fine, because whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God, right? So if you wear your Sunday best, you come to that conviction, you want to wear your best to honor and glorify God, and that's your conviction before the Lord, that is a good thing. Praise God for that. Do that. But when you start to teach others that, hey, you need to wear your Sunday best. You need to wear this or that on a Sunday morning. Then you have elevated your idea, your conviction as a doctrine of God. And worse, when we make such traditions a big deal, we make them the main focus of our Christian faith. We're essentially teaching, and this is particularly parents, we teach our next generation what's important. Now, I, I get it. I'm wrestling with myself. I, I, am I teaching my daughter that she needs to dress nice to honor the Lord, you know, on a Sunday morning? 
Or am I teaching her that when you, by dressing nicely, you honor the Lord? Okay, it's subtle. The external ritual by itself does not honor the Lord. But when she gets it at some point, I want to teach her whatever she may come to be convicted of to honor the Lord, she, to, to do, whether it's dressing up on a Sunday morning to honor God, to prepare our hearts and all those things. There's very practical things with dressing up on a Sunday morning. But I never want to teach her or I never want to teach you as a church that traditions, these convictions that we have, make us right before God. And therefore, others have to hold that. And that makes them right before God. When we do that, we elevate our traditions, our convictions, our man-made ideas above God's word. It makes it, or at the very least, it makes it equal to God's word. Instead of teaching our next generation about putting on clothes, more importantly, we want to teach them about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. As a church, we have so many traditions, some good, some non-biblical, a few perhaps bad. But every non-biblical tradition is a potential precept of men that may eventually be taught as the doctrines of God. And those of us with eyes to see, let us be watchful that we don't do this. I'm inviting you, all of you who are mature in the faith, to join along just to be guarded about this. Especially those of us that are teachers, that are leaders, that are parents of this church. We don't want to teach, pass on the traditions of men as doctrines of God. As we conclude, here at Essa Bible, we have a motto. Do you know what our motto is? Anybody know? Holding fast, right? It starts with holding fast. Is it holding fast the traditions of the elders? Uh, that wouldn't be bad. Yeah, but no, it's a good thing it's not that. Holding fast the word of men? No, it's not that. Thank God as well. Our motto is holding fast the word of life, Philippians 2.16. Holding fast the very word that brings life, the gospel, really the Bible, the word of God. We hold fast to the word alone. To hold fast anything else, is threat and danger to the health of this church. So whatever it is, whether it's our thoughts, our convictions, our words, they must, we must always submit them to the word of God. Let us hold fast to the word of life, to the word of God, to the gospel, and let everything else perish. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is always our correcting, the word of instrument of your correcting us. Father, guard this church. We who have existed for 50 plus years, Lord, you know we have many traditions. And we thank God for some of these traditions that have been passed on from the from earlier generations. Uh, all uh, created and instituted for the good of this church. Lord, you know that sometimes our traditions can be elevated 
to the place where it is equal with your word. Father, guard us from that kind of legalism. Guard us from, uh, uh, from evaluating our righteousness simply by these out observance of human traditions. But help us always to evaluate our faith, our walk with you, our, our standing with you by your word, by Christ. Help us never to settle for man-made traditions, man-made religion. But help us to cling fast to the word of life and cling fast to the one whom the word of life points to, Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins so that we would not have to continue to try to live our lives, to work or earn our salvation, but simply to live in freedom in Christ to be free to live our lives in a way that honors you. Father, as we especially pray for our older generation of this church, the parents of this church, myself included, Lord, as we pass on traditions to the next generation, Lord, help us to be wise in our teaching of it. Help us to be always thinking in passing on the biblical principles of that which we do, teaching our next generation that what guides us is not these traditions, but by your word. Lord, help us to pass on to them that it's the word that leads us so they would catch that and they would grasp that so that as, as they grow into the next generation, as they start passing it on to others, that they, would, they too would evaluate And look at what they're teaching, what they're passing on by your word once again. And Lord, may all our traditions perish. And may in the end, only your biblical truths, your biblical principles, your your son Jesus Christ, be passed on from one generation to the next. Lord, guard your church. Help us to be a healthy, sincere true church that worships you in accordance with your word in spirit and in truth because of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.